Hello, and welcome to Radical Exchanges. I'm joined in this episode by James Evans, who is, among other things, the director of University of Chicago's Knowledge Lab and an external professor of the Santa Fe Institute. With Knowledge Lab, James is launching a new open access journal of social computing, which addresses itself to the interface between computational and social systems, and I recommend that you all check it out. James is a brilliant thinker who, in my estimation, is tackling our most important questions in an incredibly useful and productive way. He highlights the value of diversity within human societies, and also in the sense of seeing our tools and technologies as complementing humans, not replacing them. In order for this to happen, we need to clearly understand and profoundly value how humans and machines are different from each other. His thinking makes clear that the betterment of society and the advancement of technology are one project, not two. This conversation was a pleasure. We went deep on the relationship between artificial intelligence and democracy, the trade-offs between hybridization and speciation, and much more. As with all of my conversations with James, I learned a lot. I am Matt Pruitt, and this is the Radical Exchanges podcast with James Evans. Thank you, James, so much for being here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about what you're doing in Radical Exchange, and I'm excited to you know, explore ways in which some of the work that we've been doing intersects with those possibilities. Awesome. Very much uh, the feeling is mutual. And um, I thought perhaps we should begin, you know, I would love to hear more about your journey as a thinker and sort of how you got interested in the things you're working on. Yeah. How does one uh, begin? Uh, so I was uh, an anthropology undergraduate, anthropology and economics. I was really interested in understanding ideas and culture at scale. And I went to Harvard after my undergraduate at Brigham Young and ended up taking a couple of classes in network analysis and kind of the analysis of graphs. And I, even though they were being used at that time exclusively to study Social networks, I got really excited about the possibility of representing ideas and cultures at scale through some of these kinds of mechanisms. And and I think that kind of kicked me off on a journey that's been, to me, a really exciting one. I got my PhD in sociology with a real interest in computational social science and computational methods at Stanford, and I've been at Chicago ever since, and have really been interested in this intersection of understanding, on the one hand, social life and society, and with a special emphasis on on innovation and discovery and invention, you know, using large-scale computational methods and, and kind of the array of sensors which these systems provide us with. But on the other hand, turning those things around and using computation to reimagine some of the things that we're involved in societies. I mean, not only innovation and invention, but governance more broadly. So, you know, how do we really think about, you know, kind of using social ideas and patterns and network dependencies to better kind of like compute and understand our world? And then how can we use those computations to reach back and, and, um, and better produce where it is that we want? So, um, so I've been in Chicago for about 17 years and have uh, traveled around different areas. I would say I've spend, I spent a lot of time developing an area that I call the science of science, which is really using the full imaginary from all the sciences and beyond to apply to the improvement of science itself and social science and the humanities 
know, how do we really understand and tune our collective knowledge rather than tuning and improving and optimizing our individual knowledge, because those often clash. You know, if we really succeed at one, we almost invariably fail at the other. If we really systematically fail an in individual knowledge, we typically do much better if we're seeking collective innovation. So I've been really interested in kind of pushing and promoting that. In fact, I just got off a conference with the National Academies and others that is trying to kind of promote this at the federal level because private actors and private data come in and out of this game. Microsoft, for example, was serving all kinds of amazing data, and then they just pulled out of their contributions a month ago. And, and it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to see how with the importance of data, it's, uh, it, it has, has not yet raised to the level that, um, that this data and appropriate analytics have become a real federal priority, but hopefully they will. And then the second thing is just a real interest in computational social science and social computing. So how to think about understanding the social world better through large-scale data and computational methods, but understanding and improving computation with social insights. I mean, societies are socially computing constantly, and it's just kind of a recursion. And so how how to think about new opportunities that arise in both areas in computation and the social sciences that will allow us to to do better at what we want to do and to evaluate what it is that we want to evaluate. So so that's, you know, those are some of the things that I think about. I'm also really interested, I would say, in, in trying to find ways to measure and think about knowledge and policy that transcend human capacity to either imagine or fully understand and conceive of. I think this flies in the face of efforts to create complete transparency, which I think are important at one level. But but I also think that one of the exciting things about the use of computation and, you know, kind of novel platforms is actually thinking beyond the, the limits of human capacity and kind of human negotiated agreement. And that's going to mean that some of our explanations are not fully accessible to everybody in the collective and possibly at times to any human in the collective. And I think, you know, coming to terms with that is critical for being able to build artificial intelligence, for example, that's really complementary rather than competing to human capacity. So these are things that I think a lot about. I think about a lot about augmented and amplified human intelligence, a new vision for artificial intelligence. I think a lot about computational social science and its converse kind of social computing. And I think a lot about um, leveraging all these things to basically produce better knowledge and invention. Cool. Yeah. I mean, you got, you quickly got to the heart of a lot of big questions uh, right there. I think it is useful to put all of this in context a little bit, which you've already started to do in the sense of what is it all about for you? What does it all cash out as? In other words, like, are you are you interested in, you, you mentioned building a capacity to sort of understand ourselves and sort of pursue our goals better as a, as a society. Could you expand a little bit on like, you know, what your vision is for how, before we start, let me back up for a second. In, in a minute, I want to get into what your concept of social computing is and what that means to you and how we can make it better. But I think before we get there, I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about what we can do with it, how it can help us govern ourselves better and uh, what the sort of uh, the telos of your work is. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think so. My answer, initial answer, might be pretty unsatisfying in the sense that um, you know it's for the most part like my actual day to day work is is not driven by like some massive overarching telos, and that's actually cultivated because my experience is that when we're trying to solve a particular problem, we often come up with solutions to other problems. Uh, and sometimes those other problems were problems we didn't realize that we had in the first place. And I like to keep myself open to those other possibilities o- along the way. And I would say that's often, and as I've done that, you know, my own telos, you know, has grown uh, to think about these kinds of problems in, in, uh, in new ways. And also to see the fact that some of these things that may be that, that we can't fully understand. And in fact, embracing that in very specific ways that I hope we'll have a chance to talk about could allow us to explore new collaborative possibilities, you know, between people, but also with bots and intelligences that we cultivate and, and, uh, you know, to maximize productive diversity. So I think, um, there is a bundle of contradictions, even in just what I said. Uh, so, for example, on the one hand, we want to use some of these tools to understand ourselves better. Yes, that's right. We want to understand what our values are, like from our behaviors. I think inverse reinforcement learning is an exciting possibility where reinforcement learning is, you know, you have a reward and you're basing, you're, you're building an automated robot, typically a deep learning neural network, though not necessarily which ends up behaving through reinforcement in the way in which you design potentially unleashable and novel settings. But by inverse reinforcement, you see what people actually do and you can infer what their rewards must have been for them to do what it is that they actually did. So there are all kinds of ways that I would say large-scale computation and data on many human behaviors, human decisions, human activities can allow us to understand human logics, human motivations in new ways. Like, absolutely. On the other hand, however, I'm suggesting that we try to build machines that go beyond just those human capacities in search of benefiting those human capacities. So if we wanted to, you know, if we were in the feudal era where guilds controlled what it is that we do, you know, how we do it, you know, if we're in the goldsmith's guild, then they defined how it is that goldsmithing was done. They regulated the methods by which it was done. And um, in some ways, the story of capitalism is the breaking up of these guilds and the reorganization of production to massively increase complementarities between different kinds of persons. Uh, and, um, And that led to all kinds of exploitative outcomes, but also to some powerful and continuing collective gains for individuals. I mean, I think the question about its benefit to the environment is uh, like an appropriate and ongoing question. But I think, you know, here, you know, to achieve our goals the best we can achieve them, it may be like the least useful to create things that behave like we do. Uh, in the same, in the spirit of capitalism, you know, in the spirit of reorganizing ourselves um, increasing specialization and diversity uh, so that we can actually reorganize ourselves around accomplishing things that produce useful benefits. But what does that mean? That means cultivating capacities that we don't have. That means imagining capacities that we might not be able to imagine. That means shifting from, I would say, a kind of a control approach to creating artificial intelligence to a caring approach where we're actually exploring alternative values and alternative capacities, which could be 
complementary to ourselves. They could also be harmful. It's not that this isn't a program that's fraught with risk, but it's also fraught with enormous possibilities. So I think my work has shown, at least to me, again and again, the powerful value of diversity in human collaboration, but also in economic collaboration, organization, and the political sphere and civil society. And so this basically creates almost like a Star Wars, like a new cosmic landscape on which to explore and push the limits of productive diversity. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really, uh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm struck by, it's. A, I think it's a very interesting and quite wise uh, thing that you're, you're doing, which is to sort of hold your telos a little bit loosely, right? To sort of a- accept a revision to your overall program as you, as you learn more from, you know, diverse sources that you may not have been able to, you know, understand or foresee in advance. Yeah, absolutely. And just one, uh, one way in which this kind of really just hit me this last quarter at the University of Chicago, I worked with Daniel Holtz, who is uh, a member and leader in the atomic and uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which created the doomsday clock after World War II. And and really has been kind of focused on trying to publicize existential harms to society. And so we spent the entire quarter bringing in people to talk about engineered pandemics, to talk about nuclear holocaust, environmental devastation, you know, cyber collapse, inequality, how these things exacerbate AI, evil, you know, robots. And at least for me, it, it really came home just the way in which economic prosperity and productivity over the last two centuries from the first industrial revolution has has taken a toll on the long-term capacity of the globe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think holding that telos open, and I would say even keeping open my sphere of moral concern to include, you know, other sentient and non-sentient agencies from the environment to even the bots that we're engaging with, uh, cultivating, actually... I believe can increase the potential for uh, powerful synergies. And I think that we can demonstrate some of those. Yeah. So maybe let's get into this idea of diversity a little bit. I'd, I'd love to hear in your words, you know, why is it so valuable for, you know, different sorts of agents to be interacting with each other? And how do you think of, about that? What are what are the trade-offs involved? And then maybe we can sort of transition to this question of, what computers do and what humans do. Sure. Yeah, I think there are a number of evidences in my kind of one subfield that I plan of of the uh, social science of innovation, economics and sociology of innovation that show that there is a trade-off between basically productivity and novelty or creativity uh, in these spaces. And so I can show and and have work that either has come out or is in the process of coming out that, you know, large scale hierarchical teams and, you know, densely connected scientific communities are much more likely to advance quickly, to produce more papers, to produce more short-term attention in the context of science and technology, and to move very quickly, very slowly which is to say to uh, right. you know, rapidly advance in things that are heralded as advances by others, which reinforce uh, those advances, which create these kinds of socio-technical bubbles, which are akin to the kinds of political echo chambers that we see talked about and derided and, and that we increasingly have caused fear in the context of our civic life. 
And so I've shown, for example, and, and have a number of new pieces that, that show in a kind of a deeper way, for example, that if you have highly dependent groups of scientists that are collaborating on a set of scientific finding, or if you have um, people that are drawing from the same methods repeatedly or have the same expectations, that they're much more likely to come up with the same answer, but it's much less likely that that answer is going to transit across new groups to new settings. If they're in biomedicine, it's much less likely that that's actually going to work in the clinic. Uh, if it's in pharmacology, it's much less likely that it's going to, you know, these aren't robust insights. These are fragile insights because things that appear to be collective assessments, you know, there might be a hundred papers are actually not independent experiments. They're like one experiment repeatedly. So it might right. be like 1.2 or 1.3 experiments over and over again in the same way that people inside a uh, social media bubble uh, an echo chamber hear their own opinions like echoed around as if they were all coming from some independent source, but they're all channeled, you know, through a common exposure to each other and to external media environments. So in some ways, diversity is a way of breaking those bubbles of artificial inflation, artificial inflation of certainty. And we've shown, we have work that's coming out that shows that, you know, if you take those things into account and you update your certainty accordingly, that you have a much better prediction of what things are going to hold in the future, uh, what facts to build on. And we've looked at this in, in political and civil contexts as well. So, for example, if we look at political diversity in the context of constructing Wikipedia pages, informational encyclopedic pages, people with different political backgrounds, and we initially assess this through the kinds of contributions that they make to political or liberal sites, but then we can validate it actually with just direct uh, question and remark surveys, that the more diverse communities end up producing higher quality pages. If we search for, if we select on the diversity politically, then the political pages are deemed to be the most higher quality and social issues pages, which have some, uh, you know, political content are also of higher quality and science pages, which have less political content are also of higher quality, but less so. If you select on scientific diversity, then scientific pages are perceived to be of much higher quality, et cetera. So that's another case in which, again, these assessments of quality are made independently uh, and blind to the process by which these pages were produced. They just are broader, they're deeper. That's what it is that, um, that these encyclopedic pages are trying to optimize on. But then also in things like search, uh, scientific search, but also cultural search. If you're searching for new music, if you're searching for new art forms, if you're searching for new to the world innovation or new to yourself innovation, breaking these bubbles has a dramatic impact. So there are all kinds of glass walls, glass floors, and glass ceilings in the context of science, which are conditioned as a function of uh, just the way in which fields are incentivized and funding is handed from the old to the young and education is basically constructed as a control mechanism, unintentionally uh, for the most part. I mean, there are some who intend to control, but I think for the vast majority, people just intend to uh, advance and follow their intuitions and follow their discipline, which means a commitment to a relationship between a problem and a solution. They're committed to that relationship, that juncture uh, between problem and solution. And, um, and, uh, and there, I think our argument and our findings show that they're diminishing 
returns to those commitments, right? So it's not that fields are a dumb idea, you know, that you can't study, you know, the world through looking at molecular scales in chemistry, that chemistry wasn't a good idea. Chemistry is a fine idea. It's just the boundary between chemistry and bio- biology is an underinvested in right. idea. It has a marginally better return to investment in the same way that, you know, if you're searching, you know, for new musical experiences, um, that you're going to reach outside uh, that zone to maximize the likelihood that you find something that appeals or emotionally regulates or do whatever it is that you're doing with your music or your art. So I, I think, you know, we've shown in a number of cases that um, it's not just that scientific systems and cultural systems are just efficient systems, you know, where everybody just gets more of what they want uh, through interaction, but uh, people get a lot of what they want through interaction, but it, it constrains them from search. And that constraint in search is a real constraint that we can think beyond potentially. I mean, it's, it, it's actually, it's hard for individuals to think beyond because there are costs to thinking beyond. And, and I suppose I'm bleeding into the next question, but machines don't necessarily have the same hangups or we can design them not to have the same hangups that humans have. We can design them to accept uh, insults and failures in ways that actually can hedge against some of our own explorations. And I should say, I mean, I'm just talking now in this very conceptual diversity way, like diversity of skills and diversity of experiences. And But this other work, for example, there's a wonderful proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences paper from last spring by Dan McFarland, Dan Jurofsky, and some others at Stanford that shows that this is also true for diverse identities. So this is sure. true for, you know, for women, for people of color, for people who are at the periphery of the scientific system. They're more likely to produce novel findings. The transaction costs in producing those in collaboration with other groups sometimes takes longer, especially if it's, for example, from other countries. There's a language barrier. These take more time. But the productive confusion that results effectively reduces and permeates the boundary of these socio-technical, socio-cultural barriers, right? That they're bubbles, you know, that we invariably build around ourselves and gravitate within. So that's, that's the underlying idea of diversity is that we're incentivized, we're pack animals as humans, Mm -hmm. incentivized to build communities around us. And those communities are often communities of ideas and communities of, of people and institutions that are reinforcing those ideas artificially that keep us from empirically exploring alternatives. And so diversity is about kind of like weakening the boundary of that systemic I would say, species-level bias. And so how do we cultivate it? Like, so, I mean, if I understand correctly, the idea is that, you know, we are, we reflect one another's ideas when we, when we come from similar backgrounds and are responding to similar sorts of sets of incentives, we, we end up creating little, little communities of, of opinion that are all essentially drawing from the same well so that you create this sort of illusion of productivity and an illusion of progress. And where the real gains are to be had is in breaking up that illusion of progress, right? Realizing that it's people outside of that illusory circle of productivity that have genuinely new information that can help us take, you know, major steps forward as opposed to small incremental or even illusory ones. 
But how do we cultivate that? Is that just is it just a, an attitude? Is it a question of being aware of this as we proceed in the cultivation of knowledge? Or is it something, you know, do you have, maybe I should just, I should just stop there. I mean, it strikes me that there are different ways of thinking about how to break this cycle, right? What Mm -hmm. one is, is to think about our values. Um, Another is to think about institutional incentives. And perhaps a third is to think about like technical systems that can pop our bubbles as it were. I'm curious about how you think about those sort of three different ways of looking at the problem. Yeah, well, I would say when you said awareness, I think awareness is a completely non-trivial thing because I think part of the challenge is demonstrating. We have to demonstrate over and over again in more and more contexts that diversity matters because it's unnatural. <laughs> I mean, it's we're trying to, you know, drawn to our tribe, we're drawn to reinforcing and creating a, a tribe. This is what human societies do. This is what endothermic mammals do, you know, like yeah. how do we, how, you know, how do they outcompete dinosaurs? Well, by like regulating their, you know, thermal environment so they could like hunt at night, you know, they could, we can increase our ability to predict the future. And, but that creates this, this very self-destructive cycle where one of the best ways for us to be able to, to produce and predict our success in the future is to, to, in, you know, ensure our success in the future by building friends and allies and creating a bubble that is going to absolutely kind of keep the benefits in and, you know, keep the riffraff and the barbarians out. And um, it's not like there's one demonstration. I think we're going to have to demonstrate over and over and over again in each new context uh, that diversity matters. And it's not necessarily that arbitrary diversity matters. I think we have to be open to the fact that in some circumstances, we might not want communicative diversity, for example, if we're in a control environment, we need to make quick decisions if we need to. Although the way in which skills and knowledge interlock is sufficiently complex that uh, we can't posit those things theoretically out of hand uh, to begin with. So I would say the awareness thing is something that's going to have to happen over and over again because it's 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 fighting against a tide of trying to to uh, you know, reinforce and and enforce our ability to predict the future. And the best and cheapest way to predict the future is to to limit our uncertainty about that future. So I think that's that that demonstration is a scientific program that is going to be perennial and constant. It's not going to end. Um, but it's also more than just a demonstration. Um, it's also a discovery. So. Um, there's different kinds of diversity that matter for different kinds of tasks and problems. And so actually like discovering on the one hand, the diversities that matter and two, cultivating those diversities. So, and how do we cultivate those diversities? Well, I, I think probably at all three of the levels that you mentioned, I mean, at the values where we need to value difference and why do we need to value difference? Well, we need to value difference because it's actually flying in the face of something else, which is productivity and short-term return, mm-hmm. almost invariably. And so we need to, to formalize those values in such a way that we recognize the sacrifices that they will necessarily entail. Like if we don't recognize the sacrifices, then those sacrifices are going to come back to bite us. There are forces that are going to try to reduce diversity to maximize short-term gain. So I think, you know, one is values. Uh, a second is institutions and the structuring of incentives. And I think those incentives are really are kind of twofold. 
right? Because we're talking about two things. Uh, we're talking about you know diversity, and we're talking about the way in which diversity historically actually cultivates risky bets, right? It, it cultivates new possibilities which are probably wrong, but if they succeed, they could be transformative because they're under likely to have been imagined or explored, right? The things that are inside our bubble are, are like overtilled, you know? I mean, we've, we're drawing from the same well, you know, the well's going dry. And I would say that's actually one of the awarenesses is that the well's going dry. So, mm-hmm. you know, so there was a really nice piece uh, by Benjamin Jones, a great economist of innovation at, at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, in which he talks about the death of the Renaissance man. He shows how people are getting older, as you know, they get grants, they get older when they get awards, you know, it just the entire scientific system is aging. Um, his interpretation is that there's just diminishing margin returns to exploration. We just, we're, we're hitting fundamental limits. We, we understand as much as we can understand. It turns out there's almost a footnoted uh, finding in that piece that um, in the rate, the, the age of invention does not go up. A first invention does not go up. Okay. Um, an invention is very interesting, right? Because there are no fields in invention. When yeah. You patent an invention, you're actually trying to find something that's interstitial, you know, that is, uh, you know, that violates fields. You're specifically optimizing on novelty. And so another interpretation of that diminishing marginal returns is just that we've picked all the low hanging fruits from this tree, but there are other trees that like we're just, we just have not looked uh, at the forest of trees. And so science is like committed to a few trees, let's say the disciplines that we've inherited, but they're like a whole bunch of others that are, that are out there. So I think that incentives can both valorize different kinds of diversity, which are proven or unproven uh, reservoirs of possibility. And it can also facilitate the incentivization uh, or the incentivizing of risk, right? So individual scientists and innovators, uh, but also people in the private sector, you know, entrepreneurs can engage in more risky behavior that will invariably lead to more individual failure and a higher potential for collective success, right? For somebody to hit on a new combination of physical or social or technical principles that facilitates really a transformative gain um, technically or socially that that can bring real value, you know, to, to the world, hopefully with, with like minimal costs. And I would say just one other notion on this, this idea of incentives and institutions. There's this, I, I think, a, a beautiful idea by Charles Sanders Peirce. He was a philosopher at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, who advocated among other things, I mean, he was really a, a polymath, a semiotician, philosopher, scientist. I mean, he advocated for this idea of abduction. And uh, in my gloss of what abduction is, is that, uh, you know, it's like the collision of induction and deduction. Right? Deduction is where you have axioms, principles, like really solidly known facts, and you extrapolate from them. Like you explore their implications in a whole bunch of different domains. Induction is where you search for new things uh, in the wild or in the artificial world, wherever, you know, you're just looking, your mind is potentially wide open and, uh, and you discover those patterns and then you generalize from those patterns, right? And uh, you derive laws that could be true for the things that you observe. 
Um, and then abduction, he argued, you know, was was actually associated increasingly with like every modern advance. And um, and that's where you basically do something that you expect to get a certain answer and then you're wrong. Right. An experiment fails. A uh, observation, you know, goes awry. You know, you, you have an expectation and you're wrong. And that surprise ends up inspiring some new hypothesis that, that really changes the field, that moves it forward. So this is, you know, Fleming identifying, you know, in the context of his office, penicillin, you know, through just, you know, it was, it was a messy office, right? So it was, it, was an, it was an accidental experiment, but he was there prepared to take advantage of it. And there are stories of a few individual scientists who do take advantage of these serendipitous events. So abduction is, is where you do something and you're wrong. Right. And right. so and so that that, you know, being wrong inspires, you know, and, and we've got, as I mentioned, a bunch of individual inventors and discoverers who have like historically done that. And it's like, wow, that's interesting. But not I would say not so many like there there are, there are a few examples of of people who were surprised and discover. And, you know, and why are there few people? Well, I think the reason there are few is because the person who's inside the bubble who understands the contradiction, who understands the problem, is in some sense the worst person to have access to the informational resources that would make the surprising thing unsurprising. Right. Because if they were outside the bubble, then it wouldn't be surprising. They wouldn't even see the surprise, you know? So it actually, so it requires a conversation across this boundary of people inside and outside to like, I, like problems are constructed inside. And so, but, but solutions in some ways almost by definition need to come from someone outside those spaces. So I think, you know, we can um, cultivate diversity. We can create events that bring people together, that bring insiders and outsiders together. If we do that, we need to have a public discussion about failure because right. if we do more of that, we're going to have more failure. We're going to spend less money, more money on on more failures, you know, right. on stuff that doesn't actually work, and and we have to do that if we want to achieve outsized success. Um, and then, oh, go ahead. No, to no. me, this seems like one of the biggest barriers of all. It's that you know what the the sort of approach to knowledge that you're suggesting requires that we have more people who are less afraid to fail, yeah. right? And, yeah, and that's and that's why we need policies that actually valorize that in the academy. I mean, we're horrible at that. So it's about it's about individual genius and consistency of individual productivity. I mean, you know, I, I, there are few places in history that have done better at this. Like I would say, the historical Bell Labs um, in its golden age. Now, again, it was also a monopoly, and and there, there so there were costs to uh, the kinds of structures that it had, but it did basically validate and reward groups at group, on group level productivity, and so it, it, so there are a number of cases in 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 you know the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in which you know individuals were completely unsuccessful, but they wandered around that landscape and across the group uh, there were a number of interesting and surprising outcomes. So finding ways to like again you know like bet on, on, on big bets, you mm -hmm. know, uh, specifically bet on diversity and bet on risk or 
to locate resources in such a way that they allow individuals to do that. So, for example, if I give you a grant that covers six years, you're more likely to take long bets than if I give you a grant that satisfies your two years in the same way that a senator might make longer bets than a congressperson, right, in in arguments on the floor of, of, you know, of Congress. Right. It also seems like, you know, the 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 people who are most inclined to facilitate this kind of process are the least well positioned to capture the benefits, right? Yes. So for example, you know, I I think sometimes some of the most valuable contributors to all kinds of different processes of knowledge formation are the people who are just uh, flitting in and out and get, you know, just giving you the crown jewel of their thinking in a clause you know, in a sentence and then leaving, right? Yeah, and they're under under rewarded in the right. systems that we currently have. So, you know, you can show if you if you have someone like, I mean, you know, a genius like Richard Feynman who stays arguably, I mean, he did do some flitting, but he stayed squarely for the most of his career in one space, and he got enormous returns in the same way that Noam Chomsky, who right. who controlled American linguistics for half a century, you know, he enforced credit. Uh, whereas, you know, people are flitting in and out. There's no enforcement. There's no need for people to cite and appreciate them. So they're underappreciated. And right. uh, so it, it is, you know, contributors are one of the things that's striking to me. So I, I recently did a kind of a survey experiment, with some colleagues. And uh, in that survey experiment, we just were interested in what influenced people and analyze this in the context of COVID, you know, like does being in place matter for anything, you know, does being together matter? And so we, you know, randomly selected papers at different levels of the hierarchy of citation. We randomly selected sites within those papers and we asked people what were their influential sites? How well did they know those sites, et cetera. And then we rejected them, you know, in a computational space so we could identify how different these papers were. One of the things that was striking was that the citations that you make to people within your institution are much more likely to be further from you sure. than citations at other institutions. And they're much more likely to be ascribed as much more important for your ideas in the context of your argument. So, so it's like those local diversities that you cultivate through whatever, through the soccer team, through serving a committee, you know, through, I mean, people outside your department, but inside your institution are the people who are the most likely to influence your work. And in some ways, the least likely to, in, se- in some sense, be credited by you know, your work or benefit from the credit from your work. So building institutions that facilitate and catalyze this and building incentive systems that find other ways for accounting for appreciating and appreciating the possibility, not just honoring successes, but honoring attempts or shots on goal. And then I guess the third thing that you asked about was the technical thing. And, uh, you know, how is it that we can build platforms and use technology to to reach, you know, beyond our capacity? And I would say the the one that I've been increasingly excited about, not only cultivating and preserving diversity, but but generating diversity. You know, how how can we generate, you know, things that our educational system, our commitments to reinforcement, just miss systematically. And not just, I mean, you know, those are like social things that we can arbitrage, but can we also hedge against just biases of, of human 
reasons. So for example, we know, you know, if you go into a psychology textbook, they're like 12, 15 um, visual anomalies, you know, where we see something, we see like a bias, something that's not really there. We see a line that's longer than, you know, we thought it was going to be. There are a few of those. Uh, and so like, we know, we know there's like this bias and, and if we construct things in a certain way, we can fool people, but we have, we have a lot, we, you know, we have visual, logical, all these other biases um, that it's not just one person or the other person, like we all have. Um, how can we identify these in ways and build diversity um, such that we build um, collectives that break our bubbles, you know, and propose things that we couldn't have conceived of or proposed, you know, like a, a physician. I mean, we're really interested increasingly uh, in cocktails, like in medical cocktails, but nobody is thinking through like a 10 dimensional, 10 component cocktail, like, you know, it's explosive, the number of possibilities. We can't keep it in our heads. You can't write it in a paper. And yet, that's like an enormous frontier of possibilities that machines could search through that were very unlikely to without them. Right. And so this is connected, if I understand, to the idea that um, there's sort of two possible directions for artificial intelligence and computation, right? One where we sort of are trying to replicate human capacities. And another where we're trying to build complementary capacities in machines such that what machines are doing is like as different as possible from what we do, which is like another, another axis of, of diversity. Is that, is that essentially, um, yes. does that resonate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about creating, you know, aliens, basically. Now, as different as possible is, is challenging frame. I mean, we're, we're trying to surf this chaotic boundary, right? Because if they're too different, you know, if they propose things that are, you know, we, we completely can't understand, we can't plug into our current systems. Uh, we can, if they don't share a language, right, then, right. you know, then it's going to be difficult for us to, to engage with them and benefit from them. There's a place um, where we don't understand what's going on. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and now at the same time, if they're too close, obviously, then they don't give us much benefit. It's there's this phenomena in biology called hybrid vigor, right? Yeah. I mean, anyone who has a, a mutt, you know, or a hybrid, you know, a healthy hybrid dog knows that, you know, you put together cross bubbles, genetic bubbles, and, uh, and you do better, you know, uh, systematically you do better. You see a burst, you know, in the plant kingdom and animals and a whole bunch of different places. And that's the same thing. Like if it's too far, you know, then like the egg and sperm don't gestate, you know, if it's sexual communication is impossible, if it's too close, then there's like no added benefit to riffle shuffling the genes. There's no benefits from sex, but we don't know how far that boundary is, right? I mean, there, there are a lot of things that we used to think were species in the plant kingdom. And then it turns out that only when we started thinking about and being concerned about things like, you know, super weeds you know, uh, that we're hybridizing with GM crops that we realized that a whole bunch of things are hybridizing and interacting that we didn't think could interact. Like we didn't think that that was possible. So, so I, I'm advocating actually really, you know, we don't know what the outer limits of those communicating, uh, those incommunicative agents are. I and mean, something might be able to kind of produce something, you know, after a while of incomprehensibility that ends up being really useful. Um, right. And so, you know, like how, how do we engage in, 
you know, the patients and how do we hedge against very real and natural fears against creating things that are either useless or even like potentially malfeasant, right, or harmful. And I think the challenge is that that's, that ultimately that's going to have to become a a fear that we, we manage rather than a fear that we hide and repress. The idea of hybrid vigor is is really really an interesting one to me because I I think that if you if you think about this idea that you know d- diversity within a species strengthens the species so okay on the one hand you've got the idea that diversity within a species strengthens the species on the other hand you've got speciation right you've got you know s- sometimes you know different groups within a species go off and become totally different things. And in fact, the global diversity, the global biodiversity is a consequence of that happening, right? Not of, of, of hybrid vigor. And so we're constantly faced with this question of whether to go off on our own or whether to keep invigorating the whole through hybridization, basically, right? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And, it's, and I think that point and surfing that boundary is the key to sustainable innovation. Right. Because if you just exploit, you know, if you just, you know, recombine like all those benefits, we're just going to like harvest all those benefits, then what's going to happen? And we have a paper where we show this. If if you embed, for example, collaborations in the scientific space, then the conversation collapses. Right. Because if I'm talking to you and I'm talking to the third person, then just the number of independent conversations goes down, the number of Things, variables, concerns, concepts that we care about collectively goes down. Um, so you have this weird kind of like I say weird because it has a certain geometry, but it's it's uh, it's a complex geometry where there's a collective attention space, and if we're interacting, then that attention space is like a shared commons, and we can eat it up. And so you're right. If we, if all of us are constantly talking all the time and trying to you know, benefit from uh, this cross-pollination, then difference disappears. Right. It's the difference which on which that was, the benefits of that were predicated. So it's like you need to, so in some ways this is also, it's dissing disciplines, but it's, it's actually suggesting the importance, the importance for continuing difference and minimum communication and like independent activities that then can be explored and rehybridized potentially in the future, right? Maybe a distant future. And I think that's the key. You, the, that you know, when when you do have this you know metaphorical speciation thing, where you know different different knowledge clusters or different groups, and and actually, I, I kind of want to circle back to politics in a second because I think this is this is incredibly relevant to like political community and that sort of thing. But the uh, you know, when you do have this speciation phenomenon, the key is that that isn't a bad thing because the two species that uh, that become different remain in dialogue. They remain connected to one another. They, they remain, they, they're still occupying the same ecosystem. They're still interacting with uh, with one another. So it's it's you know, you lose the benefits of diversity when the when that interaction is cut off, you know. But nonetheless, well, when it's yeah. cut off forever, exactly right. But, but sometimes it needs to be cut off for a while, you know, right. for something. So I would say almost every meaningful speciation in the scientific space has occurred 
as a result of uh, of forced exit. You know, so you know, people, organic chemists felt like biochemistry really at the turn of the 20th century was uh, many of them that it, that they were looking for high level enzymatic events. They were kind of glossing over all kinds of underlying organic uh, reaction differences, and the same. For genetic events, genetic events involved all ton, you know a ton of enzymatic and other events, and so they're like, oh, but but looking at that different level of analysis, you know, and then they cut them off in some ways. They stopped publishing in their journals, but they published in other journals, and and both of those moves happened to be enormously productive moves. You know, I mean, they they I mean, right. it became a meaningful science. But I, I think you know, it's like sometimes you know it. it the best thing to happen for, for both of those fields in some ways was to be exiled from their home journals, <laughs> you know, and to stop conversing with people who saw true and correct limitations to their approaches. Right. So, I mean, the other thing that's, that strikes me really powerfully about this, this kind of area of thought is that these questions of whether to, I'm just going to sort of stick with the same metaphor here, you know, that these questions of whether to continue to invigorate the whole through hybridization interaction or whether to speciate are so, are very, very normatively fraught, right? The question of whether to uh, split off or not to split off in the context of a political community or, or an academic discipline, they're painful. People, they're morally significant. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, from the, from, the, from the sort of zoomed out view that we're talking about it right now, we're talking about how sort of both can work, right? Both can be good. Sometimes it's good to, you know, all of the disparate pieces to continue to interact as a whole. And sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's okay for it that to sort of like not happen for a while. Right. Um, well, well, I would say, I mean, I think, you know, it, it, you need, you need to find your place in that boundary. If there's not enough yeah. difference, you're going to hit those diminishing margin returns really hard because there'll be no place to go. You know, you'll have hit the top of the tree and there's no one, and there's no one else looking at other trees and it's just the end, you know, right. And, uh, so I think anyway. So I, I, I completely. I mean, I think finding that boundary is a, is 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 a challenge. It's it's very hard, and and even even there. I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier some examples where less diversity in thinking is needed, right? I mean, in some kind of a command and you know highly focused, highly predetermined, predefined command and control type function. I mean, if you're if you're running a, a small organization that you know, like in the, the military or something like that, your job is to, I don't know, you know, guard the perimeter of the nuclear facility or something like that. You know, you don't like, you don't need that much. I mean, I guess even there, okay, you could benefit you from want efficient communication. You want a very uh, efficient know, communication. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, then I love this. I think you're, put, you're, you're, you're pushing me in, in really profound ways because on the one hand, we want to network all of our societies in ways that we can, you know, we can, you know, reduce inequities and that we can enable wealth flows and, and communication. But the flip side of that is everyone's speaking the same language. So all the cultural knowledge, which is in all those different languages disappears. Everyone's using and engaged in the same set of political institutions, which 
systematically are benefiting some kinds of activities and kinds of things and not others. And, you know, so we don't, you know, so, so it's, it's very tricky because diversity also facilitates and perpetuates inequality. So we're, we live in a, in a complex multivalent moral landscape, which values each of these things, but the balance of those values dramatically differs in how it is that we engage in, in managing the world. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I, th- I think these are the hardest questions. I think these are the, absolutely the hardest kinds of question, right? And just to sort of, um, uh, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how, I-, I think there's a lot of interesting things to say about how non-human agents can kind of play into these into these judgments. But I, I think I just want to say quickly that this is something that that I think about a lot in the context of like voting systems and you know uh, political political communities of the of the sort that we try to you know empower through things like quadratic voting and stuff that we're working on at Radical Exchange Foundation. And to to get more specific about that, a lot of these mechanisms that we work with that essentially help large groups of people make more accurate decisions and more nuanced compromises and in, interact with one another and sort of behave as a whole in a better way are vulnerable to uh, to you know what is sometimes called collusion which is essentially the same word as cooperation with a negative connotation right yeah. um, and th- I think that like that kind of judgment call is like is this cooperation or is this collusion that's exactly what we're talking about here right absolutely you know, it's yeah, but, but just just one thing you know that that you know it's it's like elections themselves are a fundamental paradox right? Regardless of how you run them, because something is at stake, a decision, an important decision needs to be made. You pull the populace. In pulling the populace, you unleash a social influence process. And so at the very act of trying to pull the diversity of opinions and perspectives, you're reducing that diversity right. through this process. Right after, right after the election, people are much more certain and much less diverse collectively than they were before the election. And so, I mean, I believe in argument, debate, and persuasion, and yet the scales on which it unfolds also dramatically reduces, in some cases, very productive diversity, which is, which is like flushed from the system in the very process of, of assessing that diversity. This might be a tangent not to go down. If so, we'll cut it out. But have, have you read um, uh, Have you read Ronald, Ronald Dworkin? Uh, which piece are you referring to in particular? I'm thinking about uh, there's some there's interesting stuff in 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 Law's Empire about um, about political community that that touches on this. It's been a while. I'll just okay. Say. <laughs> okay. The, uh, so, so refresh me. Well, his view of law sort of assumes that like the actual the actual meaning and content of law is arrived at through these kind of shared interpretive processes that go on in political communities so that it in order to engage in like a coherent interpretive process that helps us understand you know what the norms governing our community are or or for that matter like what the constitution really means or says or you know that sort of process of figuring that out presupposes that we're part of a community of, of common meaning and common narrative that has certain kinds of characteristics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, so I think this, this is one of those challenges is I, I'm, 
I would argue that they're also diminishing margin returns to most particular sets of values. Right. Right. I mean, you can say I value this, that, and the other, but if you turn the crank on making a decision-making engine um, that satisfies those values, at some point you realize, you know, I, I didn't think I cared about the environment, but you know, now that like all the forests are gone, I, I, I do, I, I did care. I should have cared about the, you know, like there, like, so any finite uh, moral commitment itself has in some ways diminishing marginal returns to commitment to that moral array. And so, uh, so, anyway, so, so I agree that it does presuppose these, these kinds of things, but, but this, there's a bubble that results by just by picking this, you know, discipline, you know, of, uh, of virtue and pragmatics. I mean, by this, I'm kind of like combining like the virtue ethics, what's good to do on the one hand, and what good does that produce? The kind of utilitarian ideal, uh, you know, like that's, that's your method. <laughs> you know, you've got a problem, you've got a method. So in some ways, we're, we're posing these kind of moral disciplines and they're diminishing margin returns to moral disciplines. So um, I think, um, anyway, so I couldn't agree with you more, but it, but it, 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 in the end poses the same, um, uh, the same problem of, of cultivating diversities that can hedge against those limits. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, escape this <laughs> even remotely. It's, it's just a, it's just another sort of angle on it that I, I you know, is interesting to, to think about. Yeah. So I wonder if um, let's talk about computers a little bit. Let's how, do it. how do you think artificial intelligence or machine learning or uh, whatever you want to call it can can help us sort through some of these things? So it's interesting. I mean, I'm a sociologist, but I, I'm I'm really um, I'm excited by AI not only because of some of these possibilities, but also because. And, and this is, is maybe a strange way to get into it. I've got, I've got a, a book that's coming out, hopefully at the end of the summer, from O'Reilly on thinking with deep learning. Uh, so I'm, you know, systematizing and exploring the development of certain of these models. But one of the reasons that I became interested in them was before they became successful uh, and, and interesting and high performance, I was interested in them in the same way that something like a decision tree is built and not just a decision tree, but a random forest, you know, is built on the idea of elections. And, and it turns out historically, Oliver Selfridge, one of the key participants in the idea of artificial intelligence was inspired by voting systems, by social systems, and kind of creating um, these ensemble models. For me, connectionist models and uh, deep learning models, and, and also, I mean, deep models of other kinds. I, I, I don't mean just, you know, kind of backpropagation, deep neural networks, but, but especially deep neural networks. They actually suggest a kind of, rather than like an electoral process where you're just like polling everybody, um, a discursive and influential process by which you develop like sub-models that are then like speaking with and arguing with each other. And you're actually, if you optimize, a, you know, front to back and a feed-forward neural network, you're, you're, you're going to create diversity of models in the middle of that model that then, you know, come back and vote, you know, to kind of produce the optimal outcome. Uh, so there's some neuroscience on these deep learning models, which suggests that they're doing some of the exact same kinds of things that we're talking about. So, so I th I, for me, the models are interesting because they work, uh, but they also take collective and social principles seriously. 
by you know building you know so GPT three for example this is this this uh, you know transformer model uh, by OpenAI it has hundreds of billions of parameters that's one hundred seventy five billion parameters I mean that's that's you know that's like a bunch of worlds of little people each of those parameters are a separate little model inside that space uh, or they're you know ganglia of them are like separate models so so I actually came to some of these forms of computation uh, because they actually reflected, I would say, social principles and some advances that are taking place in them now actually are rediscovering some of those advances of or, or things that are known about social systems and discursive systems. So um, I, I kind of come to the, you know, they have like a homological appeal uh, in the sense that they they take into account some of the things that successful social systems that are computing answers and computing rationality uh, are doing. And so one of the things that's really interesting about their history is just the way in which um, they have achieved success in popularity in the broader popular imagination is, you know, by the, the possibility of them approaching human intelligence. And so computing machinery and human intelligence Alan Turing writes about and talks about this imitation game. And this really became, um, it just became an enormous thing. I, not just the idea of the imitation game as a whole, but like, he, you know, just ignoring humans per se, but just arguing that humans are the standard, you know, that's the standard of intelligence. And so if we're going to create intelligent machines, then that's the standard we have to satisfy. And that was like, I would say even more deeply captured in Arthur Samuel's work over the 1950s, and finally with his encapsulation of it as machine learning that, you know, we're not just going to target a human-like or humanoid outcome. We're going to, we're going to target human processes. Like we're going to use from, we're going to use stepwise human data, for example, to learn a a checkers playing machine, which is what he was developing. Um, And so it's not only like, you know, trying to achieve the same outcome, but it's trying to achieve it by human-like steps in this process. And I think, you know, that was enormously popular games, you know, people engage in games and that seemed to be like a nice model for human intelligence. Um, But if you just push that to its logical conclusion, um, successful models, it's just like we're just putting like a bullseye on the back of human capacity. Um, And that's, you know, it just seems neither the most ethical investment nor the most efficient investment. It's not the most ethical investment because I was in China in the fall of 2019 when I'm trying to remember the the town in the South, but it was a huge automaker that completely automated its, uh, its efforts and, and it put out of work. I mean, I don't know if it was 25 or 250. I mean, it was, it was, it was, you know, at least tens of thousands of workers and maybe over a hundred thousand workers um, it was it was a big deal in China. We barely heard about it in the U.S., but it was a big deal in China. Uh, and I think the idea that we're growing uh, machines that are just like you know reinforcement learning against human capacities um, is is really an effective way to decrease the value of a whole bunch of human capacities. Um, and uh, and you can see it's interesting in places where we really value those humans, like radiologists. We've chosen a different path. 
you know, uh, right. like if, if, if we just let the machines, you know, run on uh, radiological images, then I'm not saying the radiologists would completely be out of jobs, but we'd have a lot less employed, you know. Uh, but no, no, we were very careful to kind of make sure that we retooled them so that they'd be able to be in positions where they're designing and manipulating these machines. And so we could kind of like re uh, facilitate a, a long-term tooling that would allow them to retain capacity, but machines to slowly and now more quickly uh, gain that advantage. But for most humans whose value, uh, whose labor we don't care about, uh, we don't protect them. We don't try to find ways for them to kind of like re-identify uh, complementarities. Um, so I think that's, you know, that, you know, that's the problem is that we've got this. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the missed opportunity is that like we're not optimizing on collective benefit. And so we're not uh, exploring like knowledge and capacity uh, and engagement, you know, that would really, you know, fundamentally um, alter the human machine equation. Right. Um, I think, I mean, one way of, of, of putting this, uh, one way of framing this worry, which you, you know, tell me if you, if you agree with this is that it, you know, if we create, um, if we create machines that, as you say, sort of put a bullseye, you know, take, take, particular human capacities as their, as their bullseye. And what we might do is create sort of a temporary illusion that a lot of people have nothing to add, right? It, it wouldn't actually be the case, but it might seem that way for a period of time that is like relevant to, you know, the trajectory of human society. Does that well, make sense? For those individual humans, I think that's yeah. a beautiful point. I think that's not the point that I was describing, but I think that's a beautiful okay. auxiliary point that, that absolutely... You know, if I mean, and the the illusion part is critical. I mean, I would yeah. say that um, you know, radiologists actually, you know, they're flexible, intelligent humans. We can create a new job for them. They can we can create new capacities for them uh, that they didn't have, or that uh, but that benefit from the former capacities that they have um, because we value them, or because we've created a monopoly over their skill, and so they have a guild, and they they're they're able to absorb and retrain. Whereas you're right in these other contexts where we could have uh, augmented individual skill, we could have created a new brokering of, of complementarity. We, we create this artificial substitute of logic because of where we've been placing the bullseye. Right. Um, absolutely. And, uh, and so obviously human skills are going to adjust and evolve and change it's going to be a lot easier for them to adjust and evolve and change if um, the capacities that we're trying to expand are systematically optimized as a function of their contribution to the collective. In the same way that in some ways, you know, capitalist machinery and like large scale organization and these kinds of things actually blew open certain forms of productivity, you know, in the second industrial revolution, right, the turn of the 20th century. And, and so I think I mean, those things also created waste that I think we need to, to think about from other perspectives. But I think that um, they like we're trying to explore something much bigger than just liberating humans from their productive contributions to society. Right. And what about the problem? I think it's a, it's very it's related, but arguably a little different. The problem of power concentration. Do you what do you think about that? So to me, there are at least sort of two versions of this worry about power concentration. 
One is, you know, to put it crudely, if we create machines that do exactly what lots of human workers do, and we put a lot of people out of um, out of work, then we've sort of concentrated power in whoever did that, you know, at the expense of the whole, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, whoever controls that machine. But this problem of power concentration, I think you also might worry about it even if artificial intelligence systems aren't exactly taking human capacity as their bullseye. Because if you build systems, I'm not sure I can crisply portray this hypothetical, but it seems to me possible that you could build systems like maybe GPT-3 falls into this category that draw on sociality um, you know, in, in, a, in a really interesting way. But where control over the system that sort of draws on uh, on on that you know incredibly deep well of 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 rich information, you know, control of that system is um, you know not fully distributed, you know, or is you know dramatically less distributed distributed than the sources of information and the sources of value that um, that went into creating it. Yeah, I mean, you, you, what you're saying though poses just an interesting paradox, right? Because um, centralization of, for example, you know, data and, you know, so, so we've got, you know, companies that produce platforms that, that generate lots of data, they use that data to drive um, artificial intelligence or intelligent uh, agent systems, um, that data centralized, those algorithms are centralized, the wealth uh, the, and mm-hmm. the rents that they get from, you know, those algorithms are centralized. And so that creates all kinds of inequalities and all kinds of potential problems. I would say at the same time, it's a lot. And, and Sindel Mullenathan made this point beautifully in a uh, New York Times opinion in which he stated, yes, these algorithms are biased. This was after a, a wonderful science piece um, he wrote with several colleagues where they showed that there was a big insurance uh, algorithm that systematically underscored the ill health of of participants of color, right? Because historically, from historical reimbursement data, less was paid on them for like the same level of disease. And so going forward, less was recommended to to cover that same level of disease. So they had to be much sicker to be scored at the same level of sickness. And uh, But his argument was, yes, they're biased, but if we undertake a kind of program of machine behavior, uh, where we just monitor their behavior that's really been promoted by by some others, then it's actually much easier to debias them than it is to debias like the social system. Like imagine just telling a judge, you know, um, you know, you, you just uh, here's some data. Uh, it turns out that you know you're biased against those who come before the bar, you know, who are Hispanic, who are female, who are women. Yeah. It's all these insidious biases. Can you just stop those biases? And of course, they don't know where those biases are, right. where, how they change them. I mean, they can look at the data, but they don't, you know, they don't know where they came from. Uh, with an algorithm, we don't necessarily, we may not need to know. We can either change the objective function or we can like add a constraint. Um, those are the two strategies. And so I think centralization actually facilitates the kinds of monitoring and control, um, which we don't have in a pluralistic and distributed society, but they also, you know, create all kinds of inequities and, and lack of distribution and lack of, so it's like the same thing 
uh, we see manifest over again. I, I think, yeah. So I, I, th- I think it's, it's, it is, it's challenging. It's challenging to, uh, but, but I, I completely agree that um, even the platforms we have, and especially the, the increasingly monopoly platforms we have, you know, so places like Google, you know, kind of advertisement and market behavior. I mean, it's like, you know, there's nothing else that exists out there. And so we don't have other kinds of data that could be cultivated into alternative artificial intelligences, which could produce alternative values. Yeah. And so we need a kind of a competition policy without question that facilitates and preserves diversity across platforms, across data, across algorithms. Uh, and, I, and I don't see that happening nearly as fast as I think it should, uh, you know, when I look at SEC and these other organizations that are monitoring organizations at the level of very old categories of like horizontal and vertical integration and not at the level of these kind of data complementarities and potential monopolies that are very harmful. So I, I, I share your optimism about the tractability of biasing problems. Um, and the, um, but the part of this, well, I, I guess just to sort of, uh, uh, to lay my cards on the table. I mean, I, th- I, I, what the part that I do worry about is just is just the problem of power concentration as such, mm-hmm. and th- it's my and that is what leads me to be obsessed with democratic systems, basically, because I I think that there is sort of an uh, unavoidability of uh, of generating uh, some some form of power concentration. Now you can always nudge that power in a better direction or correct it or or whatever, but but I don't think you can avoid concentrating it. And that's why I think it's so important that we get better at building democratic systems through which we can share control over the kinds of systems we're talking about, right? I agree. I, I, well, well, it seems to help me understand. It seems yeah. to me this, this democracy can mean different things here. So it, it could just mean, you know, like control of the people. It, it could mean diversity, that we're actually trying to preserve the diversity, which is represented within the context of the people, uh, whether or not that's something the people have sought to control or not. Like what, uh, just help me understand your commitment there. I think both of those are important, right? Diversity of control and like diversity of platform and input, right? And, and I think those are in some ways almost two independent values because they certainly don't reinforce one another necessarily. Right. Yeah. I think, I think I'm worried about, I'm worried about both of them. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that one way of looking at it is that if we don't have, you know, robust evolving dynamic forms of democratic control over, over these systems that, you know, depend on, sociality that depend on lots and lots of people interacting and thinking and living their lives to, you know, to form the input. You know, if we, if we don't have democratic control over the output, then um, people are going to stop. It's going to, it's going to bias the future inputs, right? People, people are going to stop contributing. Uh, you're going to, you know, feel disempowered and, and, uh, and eventually, you know, uh, to, to make it concrete, like 50 years from now, uh, GPT-3 will be uh, operating on an old data set because, you know, everybody will will air gap everything they write or something, you know. Yeah. Um, 
so that's like one worry. And then, and then another worry is, you know, that's the sort of the worry from the perspective of keeping the systems good. The other worry is, is closer to the, closer to the diversity worry, closer to the sort of, you know, normative worry that basically we need to share the decisions about how these things are used and we need to share the gains that they generate. Right. Yeah. And I I think, and I think to really do that seriously, we also need a diversity of systems. Totally. Um, And, and it's, but it's, but it's very hard in the current environment to achieve that because of short-term successes, right? You have one search algorithm um, that, you know, for example, I mean, you know, PageRank uh, is, it's a beautiful algorithm because it harvests all kinds of local knowledge from the web. You know, like yeah. I, what, what it does basically is it allows me when I know something, I'll be willing to search through a few pages of search results to, uh, to get my answer. If I don't know something, then I trust the local community of people who do know that something. So right. I just pick the first one. And, uh, and so I can, you know, I can like pick a good restaurant. I can, you know, pick the right citation. I can pick, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, but those have, you know, like two obvious biases. One, they collapse the world um, or they have the potential to collapse the world, you know, so that everybody, if everyone's believing in everybody else's, uh, you know, tastes, then it like reifies and like hardens like those tastes. It makes it really difficult for alternative tastes to arise. And the second is that the enti- that entire system Right. There are other ways to organize, you know, search and certainty and assemblage of information and of possibilities, you know, in in cultural domains and political domains, you know, economic and inventive domains. And um, but if one at one moment in time is enough better than the others that it achieves monopoly power, then you see what you see with all the big tech companies, which is to say they cultivate lots of projects, they kill lots of projects. Um, they kill those projects, not because they're, they wouldn't have been a successful business for somebody else, but because they're not big enough <laughs> to marginally right. move the needle. And so in some ways, like they're the best. It's like it's like Clayton Christensen's innovation, innovator's dilemma. You know, like they're in the worst position to disrupt themselves. And um, so I, I, I couldn't agree more that that we, you know, we need a we need more democratic control, we, and, and we need a better competition policy that monitors, um, like the diversity of the systems alone, so that we have a reservoir of alternatives available to us uh, in a serious way. Which which is is not going to. I mean, under current policies, is not the case. Right, and I mean, I think that sometimes I I, I think in cer- in certain contexts that kind of like industrial competition isn't isn't enough. You know, it doesn't get us, you know, all the way there. But we, but we don't even have that. In many we don't cases. even have that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I agree. It, it <laughs> yeah. may not be enough, but it, <laughs> yeah. But it, yes. And even though it may not be enough, it's also worth noting that it is a form of democratic control, right? I mean, it's at least in theory, uh, the state is a democratic entity and the state is the thing that is enforcing the kind of rules you're talking about here. Right. And, uh, what I'm hoping and, and, in my sort of, I, I guess the, the way that I look at my project in a way is to build better, more diverse forms of democratic control that can do 
you know, they can potentially be a little bit closer to the ground, a little bit more richly textured and reach a little bit more deeply into the decisions about how these systems are are governed than the, you know, big clunky apparatus um, that we call the state. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, so this, yeah, we have, a, if, if we have a republic, um, there's, there's a lot of layers right. there. Uh, right. And each of those layers basically has its own set of heuristics and institutions, which kind of collapse a lot of potential and real diversity in the experiences and insights and the desires right, yeah. of, of the populace that they supposedly serve. Now, I, I, I couldn't agree more that government representative Republican uh, government is not enough, basically, to ensure the diversity exactly of both control and and of and of continual inputs right right required for these things to both generate value and for that value to be distributed and appropriated widely yeah so what are we uh, what are we missing what fascinating aspect of this big set of ideas have we skated past oh well i should say you know one thing about um, just in thinking about the alternative of uh, and, and and actually, this is like the missing link. It's it's not so much that we it's just from here to there. In the same year, interestingly, that um, that this idea of artificial intelligence, like the term artificial intelligence, emerged with McCormick's conference on artificial intelligence, 1955, is when he proposed that. Um, we've got this idea of augmented intelligence, amplified intelligence, that also comes out. But what it means at the time, which was important at the time and has become arguably much more commercially important than artificial intelligence were like interfaces. You know, how, how can mm-hmm. we reduce the friction between individuals and information so we can just make them super powered? You know, we can make them, you know, like they can control with their minds, that we can amplify all the things that they might otherwise want to do. We can just, you know, just turn up the, the efficiency dial. And um, and I think I think these intuitions and and insights about diversity, you know, just suggest that they're ultimately diminishing margin returns. I mean, at, at the limit, you get to the limit of human capacity, and you certainly get to the limit of your horizon of of you know what the possibilities are that you want to explore politically or otherwise. And so, finding ways to like systematically. Uh, break those prisms and burst those puzzles, bu- those bubbles is in some ways the next step in that augmented uh, collective intelligence story, which is 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 really like cultivating, valuing, generating the diversity required for us to see past ourselves in our current moment. So I think there, I think there's like a link in history to that, and I would also say. It's not like nobody's doing this. I think, you know, current reinforcement learning approaches are ways, I mean, you know, these are creating some alien things that produce things like what we want, but through the creative articulation of rewards, do things very differently than the way we do them. And I, I'm, I've been promoting, um, you know, human aware AIs that, that are, you know, like aware of, of the diversity of opinions and perspectives that are out there on the one hand, can represent them, can understand where they're coming from. On the other, can hedge against them and actually mm-hmm. provide and generate novelty to them, you know, in ways that could advance their causes. Um, so I, I think these aren't just like fanciful ideas. Like these are actual 
you know, machine. So I've got a paper that it's up on archive, but it's, you know, under review at a few places where we, uh, by just adding human awareness to an existing system, you know, that was published the year before for discovery, you know, we have a hundred to 300% improvement in performance immediately and a validation that um, if we avoid, you know, that human capacity, we can discover a whole host of things that, that would either never or not until the distant future become possibility. So I think this is not just social science fiction. Uh, this, there are actually operational things that can be done. Some people are thinking about them. Um, I think there's much more that can be done that would uh, facilitate and broaden their capacity. But I can't really, I, I, I'm trying to think if there's, there anything, uh, if there's anything else. I mean, I think this, there's, I, I mean, just this conversation alone has generated this question about the, the relationship between the willingness to valorize failures or to sustain failures and the preservation of diversity. You know, to, to me, I, you know, I mean, it's like the way these things seem to fit together that I maybe thought about it in exactly the way that I'm thinking about it now as a result of this conversation is is you, you don't want to rush into a winner-take-all situation. Right. right? You, you don't want to rush into a situation where, you know, like one platform or one governance system or one metric or one data source like or one search efficiency is, um, you know, even, even if it gives you, you know, those enormous advantages in the short term, because if you, if you do, if you jump too quickly, then you really forsake enormous amounts of opportunity in the long term and, and enormous amounts of value that could be re- redistributed and broadly shared in the long term. So like being able, it seems to me that being able to, um, to withhold the desire to place everything on that one short-term bet is, is going to be a critical issue. It's just difficult. It's, 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 it's just so, it's so delicious. You know, that feels like <laughs> such a great return, you know, to science and society and the economy, just to, to, to the creative destruction of, of, you know, letting the winners win. And, um, and so it's, but it's like basically we need to slow down the process in some sense of creative destruction um, mm-hmm. so that we preserve the diversity that facilitates, you know, like new generations of creative destruction and possibility in the future. Right. I mean, it's and it's uh, it's related, I think, to this idea of of um, not taking our metrics too seriously, you know, not not confusing our the 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 yardstick for the yard or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it circles back nicely to the comment you made at the beginning of the conversation, which is that you, you know, uh, you don't fully define your, your, your telos, right? If you, if you know exactly what the project is, um, then you are probably in the grip of some kind of an illusion, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, or my telos is illusion. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you can, you know, uh, well, the way I think about it is is that we hold these things lightly, right? We we have um, we have values and we have things that we that we think are right, but um, 
we we do well to remember that we aren't sure. <laughs> yeah, that there are other things that are right. Right. You know, besides those we've defined, other things that are no, a- absolutely. And 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 this is in some sense, I think, part of the process of discovery. It's not just about executing our values, it's about discovering the values that we should have. Uh, and in executing is in some sense how we validate the hypothesis that that was a value to pursue in part. Right. Um, so it's like it's like the process unfolds itself only through the realization of, of, of the process. So, um, but, I, and I think opening ourselves to that, you know, is, is hopefully opening ourselves to um, new opportunities along the way, you know, that will change uh, and, and new voices, you know, that will change uh, the, the space of possibilities. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, it was a huge amount of fun. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I'm, uh, I'm, there is irony that I'm sure some listeners will notice in the fact that we're talking about diverse perspectives when I think we uh, uh, share <laughs> our perspective on a lot of these things very deeply. Uh, but uh, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you. And I, I always learn a ton and uh, looking forward to, uh, to many more conversations and, and collaborations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Okay. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Bye. big thank you to James for that conversation. Thank you to Radical Exchange Foundation's supporters. This would not be possible without you. You can continue to support Radical Exchange Foundation at RadicalExchange.org. Thank you also to the producers of Radical Exchanges, Jennifer Marone and Leon Erickson. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.